So we are in a, a new series, Live with the End in Mind. The word end, it of course can refer to the, the end of all things, the, the end of history as we know it. When we see um, Syria being bombed and uh, you know the nations lining up against one another in the Middle East, uh, Russian allies, American allies, we naturally begin to think about the end. And that sense is in our passage. The, the end can also refer to purpose. We're actually hardwired to live with meaning and purpose. So in light of eternity, in light of the end of all things, how should we live? How, how should we invest our time? How should we use our spiritual gifts? How should we relate to one another? What should we prioritize? Who should we prioritize? I ask these questions in the first person plural because they actually are family questions. Stephen Covey, in his famous book, The Seven uh, Habits of Effective Families, he writes the following. He identifies one of the core habits as begin with the end in mind. Having your destination clearly in mind affects every decision along the way. Vision is greater than baggage greater than the negative baggage of the past and even the accumulated baggage of the present. Tapping into this sense of vision gives you the power and the purpose to rise above the baggage and act based on what really matters most. So what really matters most? Two weeks ago, we celebrated Easter, the wonderful resurrection of Jesus and our new life in him. We sang a wonderful song, and Pastor Jesse referred to it last weekend. You called my name, and I ran out of that grave, out of the darkness, into your glorious day, right? We sang it over and over again with with exuberant joy. Peter says, we've been born to a living hope, born into the family of God, graced with the Holy Spirit for a purpose. So what purpose? If we know our purpose, we are propelled out of the grave. 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's read it. Chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, the end of all things is at hand. What does that mean? It does not mean that we try to discern the date of Christ's return, nor does it mean that we extract ourselves from society and run for the hills because the world is just so dark. Martin Luther was asked one day what he would do if that day was the last day, and he replied this way. He said, I'd plant a tree and pay my taxes. You have two more weeks to uh, file your income tax return. That wasn't in the video announcements, so don't forget. But what's Luther saying? He's saying, hey, I'm already living in light of eternity. I will just continue to do what God directs me to do. Every now and then I get an email from someone 
telling me that the world is going to end either this week or at least this month. And if you're a good shepherd, you will warn the church. Always comes with a bit of pressure. So what does the end of all things is at hand? What does that mean? It means that all of the major events in God's salvation plan have already happened for Christ to return. In other words, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the birthing of the church, all of that has already happened. Christ could come at any time. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So notice, we're already living in the last times. We are in the last days. We have been since the resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. All that's left is the making of disciples of all nations, the return of Christ, and the last judgment. So just that knowledge should help us prioritize some things. Like, for example, making disciples. Who would have known? Christ's return may happen any day. It was at hand in Peter's day. It still is today. We're in the last stage of God's redemptive plan. That's what Scripture teaches. And because we're born to a living hope, because we're secure and guarded by the power of God, as Peter writes, we can live each day with confidence in light of the end. So what does that look like practically? Peter gives us three really practical things that we can do. Second part of verse 7. Therefore... Because the end of all things is at hand, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Self-controlled and sober-minded, it really means the same thing. Think clearly. Be mentally alert. Be wise. Be reasonable. It's a restatement of 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the disciples that he's running to, they've come come out of a world of partying and drunkenness, intoxication, sexual promiscuity, dysfunction, idolatry. And if they're going to walk full of the Holy Spirit, in holiness, with their eyes focused on Jesus, they need to spend time in God's presence and learn to think Clearly, they have to walk away from hysteria, from confusion, from fear. And as they stop and sit in God's presence, it is for the sake of something, for the sake of their prayers, so that they'll actually be waiting on God. Here's a story that illustrates what I believe Peter's talking about. There was a time when uh, English fishermen would cross the Atlantic Ocean go to the coasts of Newfoundland and fish. And so they would be at sea for weeks. On their return to England, the uh, captain of the crew would go up the mast and pull out the telescope and look at the docks. And he'd yell down to the crew, Hey, John, I see your wife and children. They're so excited. Paul, your parents are waving. So on one of these trips, trips, Arthur was on the boat, 
they crossed the Atlantic, went to the coast of Newfoundland, came back to England after being gone for weeks. The captain of the crew grows up the mast. He pulls out the telescope. He's screaming down to the crew, you know, whom he is seeing. And Arthur asks, do you see my wife? And he yells down, I don't see your wife, Arthur. So the ship or the boat lands. Arthur jumps off the boat, runs up the hill, blows through the doors of his house. And there's his wife sitting in a rocking chair, knitting. She says, hi, honey, you're home. And Arthur screams, all of the other wives, all of the other children were on the docks, screaming, excited, waiting. Point is, we are Christ's bride. And if we're not attentive and waiting, who will be? The knowledge of the end should never lead to complacency like the ad, oh, God's just going to do what he's going to do. I'll just sit here and knit. Knitting's not a bad thing. But sometimes we just spend a lot of time surfing the internet. We spend a lot of time playing video games. We spend a lot of time watching sports highlights. None of these things are bad in and of themselves. But if we're living in light of the end, then we measure the amount of time we give to those things. When we live with the end in mind, we're motivated to spend time with God, to know his heart, to think clearly. We're motivated to engage in intercession. We think about Metro Vancouver. We pray for revival in this city as we just sang. We're motivated to pray for God's kingdom to come. We're ready and armed for spiritual battle. Peter says, think clearly so you can pray. It's the first point in your outline. Think clearly so you can pray. Everything we do in light of the end, it begins on our knees, waiting on God. We live in a busy world, don't we? Uh, Constant messaging, inundated with messages. Sometimes we're so connected to the ceaseless messaging that we're unable to hear God's voice. There's texting and emails and iMessage and not Facebook anymore, right? That's something in the past. No, But Snapchat, media outlets, there's so much that bombards us that it's hard to actually separate a moment, stop, and meditate on the truths of Scripture and allow God's thoughts to actually seep deep into our minds, our souls. A few weeks ago, Judy and I, we wanted to see the sun, so we flew to another place. And, uh, you know, when you just slow down a bit, you observe life around you a bit more. So I noticed on the, in the airport, on the plane, in the malls, in the restaurants, in the parks, everyone was like this. <laughs> Even at the restaurant table, you know, families around the table, everybody's like... <laughs> if they do talk to each other, it's through the phone. Is it, it's, it's remarkable. It's pervasive. And so we need to be aware of how we live. Disconnect a bit from our devices. Sit with God. Meditate on God's truth. Hear God's voice. Have his kingdom agenda. What's really important to him on our hearts. What would God's heart for us be? Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So all that Jesus says, all that the apostles say, 
It's embraced by this call to love God and love one another. Anybody ever asks you, what's the Christian faith about? It's loving God and loving one another. First John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. We know that we've run out of that grave when or because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So Peter writes, above all, love one another earnestly. That means intentionally, actively, deeply. Perhaps Peter remembers Jesus' warning that love would grow cold at the end of the age. And I think those words of Jesus describe our age. There's so much apathy and indifference and isolation and individualism and brokenness. Wow, what an opportunity for us to be a real church family. If there ever was a time where there was a hunger for love, it's our age. And we get to be the church. For many of you, uh, this church family is the only family you have in Vancouver. So, you know, we have to engage in family. There are so many opportunities here. There are discovery groups, small groups, mentoring relationships. There's the choir. There are so many opportunities to engage in community and loving relationships, but each of us needs to take that step, take that risk to engage. When you come to church, come praying that you'll get to meet somebody that maybe you haven't met before. It's great to have friends at church, but be on the outlook for the new person as well. Expect to pray for someone. Expect to, to encourage someone in one way. If, in some way, if you pray that way, God will put people in your path. He will use you in a special way every time you come to Willingdon Church. You know, some of the kids here, they don't have grandparents in this city. Some of them don't have any aunts and uncles here. And we can be grandparents, at least some of us can be. We can be aunts and uncles to the children. Christopher Ewan reminded us a number of months ago that church family relationships are the eternal relationships. That, that takes a, to really have that land, it, it's a mindset set change. So let's pray for meaningful relationships at Willingdon. Not everybody can be a spouse, not everyone can be a parent, not everyone can be a grandparent, but everybody can be a spiritual friend, can be a brother or a sister. Peter writes, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, this doesn't mean that our love atones for sin. Only the death of Jesus, the substitutionary death of Jesus atones for sin. But when we truly love one another, we look beyond the offenses. We move beyond them. I think Proverbs ten twelve is in the background, the back of Peter's mind. Uh, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Hatred is the polar opposite of love. The stirring up dissension is the polar opposite of covering all offenses. With the enduring love that Peter talks about, offenses are frequently forgiven, quickly forgotten. What does that look like? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, which is the most marvelous description of love ever. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
Love bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I'm convicted every time I read those verses. The Russian language ministry, they celebrated Easter here last Sunday. And the chapel over here was full, a bunch of Russian speakers from Willingdon Church family, their friends. And it was a wonderful Easter celebration. But one of the things that I noticed was that uh, everyone on the ministry team was wearing a blue shirt, kind of the color of Ted's uh, shirt here, or sweater. Uh, everybody wearing a blue shirt with a cross, and on the back, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. They were easily identifiable. And as I observed that, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we as a church family were easily identifiable as a family that loves Jesus above all, and we really love one another, and we welcome everyone who comes through our doors? Wouldn't that be awesome? If people... Oh, thank you. That would be awesome. To be known, it's, it's great to go to the website at Willingdon, uh, willingdon.org. Uh, quite often people say, welcoming, friendly family. May that truly be who we are because of Jesus. The love Peter refers to sees beyond unkind acts and insults. It doesn't let the wrongdoing stick. It's not looking for a reason to be offended. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So how does that actually happen? Because we've been praying, we've been with God, we see more clearly. We have God's heart for people. So we realize that our brothers and sisters are going to be transformed into the image of Christ. We pray for them in that way. We get beyond the insult for insult. We extend grace. We forgive. We bless. We don't feed on bitterness. We don't look for wrongdoing. Peter, he's not talking about just some warm, fuzzy feeling here. He's talking about actual intentional decisions that we make to show love, actions that will enable ongoing, deepening relationship. Peter, when he was following Jesus, he, he wondered about this whole forgiveness thing. And so one day he comes to Jesus and says this. This is Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I think seven's already a great number. Don't you? That's a lot. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven times. That's like 490. That's a multitude of sins. Jesus, does it have to be a multitude? Couldn't it be seven? I tend to be analytical. I was taught to count. Can you count? You know, being analytical can be a gift. It can also be a great weakness. So I've noticed that if I stay in the analytical discernment mode for too long... I find more weakness, I find more fault lines, I find more reasons to not trust people, I find more reason for offense, more reason for judgment. So I need to back off 
And I need to intentionally exercise a love that covers a multitude of sins, a love that does not delight in discovering, in exposing the faults of others, the sins of others, a love that bears all things, endures all things. It's so practical. I find I have to practice it every day. How about you? Don't sit there self-righteously. It's true for you too. So the second key investment is love intentionally with a love that covers sin. Love intentionally with a love that covers sin. And then Peter, he, he suggests a very practical way to put this into practice. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality, of course, means kindness to strangers, right? At that time, uh, Christians needed to receive, receive other brothers and sisters coming from other towns. But here, Peter adds, uh, show hospitality to one another, which suggests that he's talking about hospitality within the church family, like receive people from the church family into your home, house gatherings, the church house, uh, sorry, the house church. And the coming together of disciples in the setting of the home has always had a quality that could never be duplicated anywhere else. And Peter says, do it without grumbling. Do it without complaining. Why? Well, because it's so practical. Some guests, they just stay far too long. Some people, they eat too much. Some people talk too much. Here's something that was said uh, around the time of, of Jesus written down. I think it reflects the human heart. Human kindness comes sparingly and tomorrow, and if it comes a second time without complaint, this is remarkable. It's from the Psalms of Solomon. That's not in Scripture. I, um, I've heard of this happening in Canada. I'm sure it never happened in your home. But I've heard of a host saying, I wish I could be one of you because then I could get up and leave. <laughs> like, that is so offensive. Or the host going to his you know, bedroom and putting on his bathrobe and coming back to the room just to show people that, hey, it is late. Like, in some cultures, that would be the unforgivable sin. I was... Um, learning something about the Pashtun people in Pakistan this week. In the Pashtun, they have this culture of hospitality. And so if you go to the home of a Pashtun in Pakistan, they'll give you tea and a meal. You can stay for weeks. And they were saying even months. That's hospitality. You know, in some cultures, we're taught to eat everything on our plate, right? My mother, that's what she taught me from when I was young, eat everything. In, uh, that, that's the way you honor your host. In some cultures, there must be food left over. There must be. If you still have something on your plate, no, sorry. If your plate is empty, that means that you're still hungry, and so I must give you more food. <laughs> so just imagine the situation. There's a guest who's finishing everything on his plate, and the host keeps filling that plate. By the end of the evening, the guest is dead and the host has no food for the week. <laughs> See, hospitality is fun. That could happen here at Willingdon, right? Very easily. So, we welcome those who look, think, act differently than us. 
into our sometimes messy lives, messy homes, because people need to see what the love of Jesus actually looks like. We have to get beyond the discourse, actually live this with each other. And then Paul gives some more practical counsel for us in verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. He says, each one, each one has received a charisma. A charisma is a a spiritual gift. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, you have received a spiritual gift. You are charismatic. Maybe you don't want to use that label, but you are because you have received the Holy Spirit. He abides in you, and you've received by the Spirit a spiritual gift, and you have the resources of heaven at your disposal. In the reservoir of heaven, there's a constant supply, a constant supply. The water reservoir of heaven never runs dry. Maybe you've been following the news around Cape Town, South Africa. If it doesn't rain significantly in the coming days and weeks, Cape Town, South Africa will run out of water by July 8th. Now, that's a crisis. But that kind of spiritual crisis doesn't exist for the believer because the water reservoirs of heaven are always full. And out of that supply, we are to serve one another. Peter says, serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. That means that God's grace is multicolored, like the, like the flowers of spring. It's wonderfully diverse. It is beautifully creative, uniquely designed for each one of us. We're stewards of that grace. Imagine a manager like Joseph managing Potiphar's household. He was a steward. The word steward, it comes from two words, house and share or distribute. So you, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you are God's house. The Holy Spirit abides in you. And you are to manage what God has graced you with. God has given you spiritual gifts. The only one that can steward what God has given to you is you. I can't do that for you. No one else can. You have to choose to be obedient to Jesus. You have to choose to put yourself before God and say, okay, God, here I am. You've filled me with your Holy Spirit. You have graced me with spiritual gifts. Use me. And it takes stepping out in faith. We steward what God has entrusted to us. That comes with responsibility. Well, what are the spiritual gifts, you might ask? Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Speaking and serving, they refer to the whole of life here. It's like Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We'll address the speaking gifts next week. The speaking gifts are gifts like teaching, evangelism, prophecy, words of knowledge. Peter basically says here, speak God's words, not your own ideas. We'll talk about that next week. For today, let's focus on the serving gifts, practical things in the church family like helps and mercy, administration, uh, giving. Here's an example of mercy. If I have a cold and I'm preaching, you all notice, right? All of you know when I have a cold. Those that don't have the gift of mercy, they'll come up to me after the service and say, 
Boy, I sure hope you get over that quickly. And off they go. That's not mercy. Those with the gift of mercy, they feel what I'm feeling. They want to be there for me. So they come up and say, hey, Pastor Ray, have you, have you considered Coke and ginger? <laughs> Works every time. Or they come with lemon tea and honey and ginger. In the recipe, there is always ginger. <laughs> but they want to be there for me. I, I, a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of our members came to me and says, you know, I was praying for you and God prompted me to buy you this supplement, supplement, zinc with vitamin C. So I've been taking it. It, it tastes good. It really does. I glow at night. Judy can't sleep, but I'm over the cold. <laughs> Mercy. You know, there are people with serving gifts. Those of you who have serving gifts, um, you see the concrete needs. You enter a room and you see what the needs are. And you want to respond. You want to get stuff done. You're usually gifted with administration, with organization. Sometimes you have a hard time saying no, and so you get tired. But normally you serve joyfully, and you need to remember what Peter says that here as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And so you serve out of, out of God's strength, not out of your own resources. One of the areas we're working to strengthen here at Willingdon Church is first impressions. Whenever you meet someone, whenever you enter a room or a church, you, you have first impressions, right? And so we're asking ourselves, how do we welcome pe- people well? The church is known to be welcoming, to be friendly. But how do we really receive people well? Receive each other well, receive new people well. It actually begins before we get to church, praying for those who will come. It also happens in the parking lot. Sometimes parking is a challenge, right? For the 10 o'clock, for the 11.30, we need parking attendance. It includes greeting, ushering, all of us should be welcoming and hospitable. So when you're in the cafe, maybe you're there with your friends, that's great, but there's somebody sitting alone. See that person. Invite them into your circle. You're going through the lobby, you see someone that's lost, help them find their way. For those of us that attend Willingdon, we think, oh, it's it's obvious. Everyone knows where the sanctuary is. No, they don't. They actually come through the doors and say, where's the sanctuary? Or where's kids' ministry? Where's student ministries? All of us can, inj- can, can be a part of this ministry of hospitality. People often make up their minds about whether they're going to come back to Willingdon before we even talk about the welcome card. Before Pastor Ron puts on his blazer to lead us in worship, people are already making up their minds about whether we're a welcoming family or not and whether they want to make this family their home. So... It's about us having a mindset, about us coming to bless, to join in worship, yes, to hear the word of God preached, but to also actively engage others in relationship, to open the door, smile, give a warm handshake, and if God is prompting you, become a parking attendant, be a greeter, be an usher. Each one of you has received a gift by the Holy Spirit, each one of you. And you are responsible to manage it. So step out of the grave. Step out of the grave and use it with joy. Serve with the God-given gifts you have already received. And you might ask, well, how do I discover my spiritual gifts? Well, the best way is to take a step of faith, take a risk, and serve. And as you serve, others will affirm God's gifting 
on your life. You can do an assessment. You can take a course like discovering your spiritual ministry. But the main thing is act, serve, respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Do it for the glory of God. Step out. As you leave the sanctuary today, there will be pastors at tables. Engage them in conversation. They're friendly people. You'll enjoy talking to them. You may not be ready to sign up for something today, but discover what the possibilities are so that you can pray about it. Peter writes, Serve in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So there's just an obvious logic to our passage, right? The end of all things is at hand. We're in the last times. So how do we live? How do we live with the end in mind? Well, first of all, we get on our knees and we pray. We pray for God's heart so that we might think rightly, think clearly. We know that we are to love God with all that we are and love one another. So we do that intentionally. We practice hospitality. We love one another. We love those who come. And then we serve because God has hardwired us for meaning and purpose, and he has graced us with spiritual gifts so that we might serve him for his glory. What a joy. What a joy. I've heard Pastor Ron say this many times, that his greatest joy is to lead the congregation in worship. That's his gift, right, Pastor Ron? That's when he feels most alive. God has graced each one of you, each one with a gift. So recognize that. Allow others to affirm God's gifting in your life and serve him with joy for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's stand for prayer. Lord, may we live with the end in mind, uh, thinking clearly, knowing your heart, Praying for your will to be done, Lord, I pray that you would raise up intercessors here at Willingdon. I thank you for those who pray. May we love one another intentionally, deeply. May we love one another with a love that covers a multitude of sins, not remembering offenses. May we be generously hospitable to one another and all that join us. You have gifted each one of us by your spirit with spiritual gifts. So may we serve you joyfully. May we take risks for your kingdom. And again, Lord, I just pray that you would raise up those with the gifts of mercy and helps and administration and service. I pray your rich blessing on all that serve at Willingdon today. May we serve you, Lord, in the ways that you have uniquely gifted us for your glory in everything through our words and deeds. May you be glorified, Father, through Jesus Christ, because to you belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. Don't forget to talk to a pastor on the way out. Bless you.